Our call to worship this evening comes from Psalm 34, verses 3 to 8. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Our God greets us this evening with these words, grace, mercy, and peace, which comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. Amen. I would like to invite the Cash Praise team to lead us in a couple songs at this point.
Thank you, praise team. Uh, you may be seated. This evening, we're going to explore Luke 16. More specifically, we're going to be unpacking the parable of the unjust servant. You know, when we look at Scripture, often we will attempt to pattern our lifestyle according to what we read in the Word. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But then we come across this passage, the passage of the unjust servant in Luke 16. And maybe we think, we're thinking, there must be something lost in the translation. Surely God doesn't want me to become some kind of embezzler or thief. Do you ever have one of those moments when it seems like the conversation around you is completely foreign to you? And you're so far out of the loop, you just have no idea what's going on. Kind of like the whole room gets a joke that someone just told, yet you have absolutely no idea what everyone's laughing at. You ever been there? I think we all have at one time or another. I have a little story to tell you from my wife's family. You see, at one point, Grandfather Fossipal came to came for a visit to Canada from Holland. On this sunny afternoon, he and my nephew Ken, who was a young child at the time, were engaged in a deep and lively conversation as they sat together at the picnic table. There was only one problem. Opa could only speak Dutch, and Ken could only speak English. Both were eager to share what was on their minds, yet the message was never received. Every once in a while, we might feel like grandfather and Ken, two engaging conversations, yet both sides have zero idea what the other is trying to relay. The parable we're going to look at today is similar in the sense that it has a tendency to leave many of us in wonder, as the meaning of the message might escape us. As we may lock into the embezzlement factor and skim over the fact that this is a parable, which means it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, not necessarily a historical event. Let me uh, lead us in a prayer of illumination. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom 
Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This morning I'd like to invite a member from uh, Wolf Creek who is with us and is going to read our scripture today. I'll be reading from Luke 16, verses 1 through 11, found on page 1625 in a few Bibles. The parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of, of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked a second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted truly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be dishonest trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you had not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? citizens of the kingdom of heaven. When I initially started doing research on this parable, I came across a phrase in one, more than one of my commentaries, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. It made me wonder if I should advance or retreat. The phrase was, this is the most difficult parable in Luke. Great. And just why am I proceeding with this venture? Yet try as I may, I just couldn't put it down. This parable has often intrigued me. I felt led, I felt compelled to continue, to see this through for myself, and now with you as well. Truth be told, it is a difficult or complicated parable, but that by no means ought to tell us to overlook it and move on. As believers, we are often drawn to the more easy, or at least easier, passages to understand. Those may be ones we'd like to meditate on and talk about. If we do that, focus and meditate on easy passages, brothers and sisters, we shortchange ourselves. And I believe we shortchange God as well. Just because they take more effort to understand, does that mean we should ignore them? Not at all. In fact, we may be blessed even more when we are compelled to struggle through them. Isn't it true that when you struggle through a perplexing issue and have solved said problem, we feel that much more elation? 
2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we ought to look even at difficult passages and discover what message God has for us to teach us, to train us, to correct us, and yes, even rebuke us. You know, when we read parables, sometimes, and maybe more often than not, we read them in an allegorical way. That is, we try to identify the characters within the parable that is depicted. We might try to see who in the parable that is depicting God, who it is that's depicting Jesus, and who might be the locals of the day within the parable, and possibly what are the aspects that might directly relate to us. One such parable in this, that we read in this way is the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where Jesus explains to the disciples in perfectly, perfect clarity the four places the seed fell and how that related to the seed of the word of God. Well, don't do that with this one because it's not one of those parables. The very first thing we need to pay attention in this parable comes in the first words. He, that is Jesus, also said to his disciples. This is evidence of a continuum of the conversation. As we turn back to verse 1 in chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. We can observe that Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in this discourse. But now, in chapter 16, Jesus turns to the disciples and is speaking about money matters. Now, all this takes place as the Pharisees are still within earshot. This is evidenced by verse 14 of our chapter, when they scoff at Jesus for his remarks, which is to mock or ridicule. Because the Bible says that they, that is the Pharisees, loved money. Our previous chapter is about the prodigal son, and the tie to this previous chapter is a parallel of the wasting of resources that were at their disposal. Unlike the prodigal son, this man is looking to his future. The big difference here is that this parable is not about finding or restoring the lost, but instead deals with life and living out discipleship of those who are found. The application is originally meant for the disciples. When we first read this parable, we might sit back in shock, as this parable seems to elevate this dishonest manager as someone to emulate. If that is our takeaway, we clearly are missing the point. This dishonest man is not commended for his dishonesty, but for taking firm, dogged action in a time of crisis. I'd like to say that again. We do not want this misunderstood. This dishonest man is not commended for his dishonesty. He is commended for taking firm, dogged action in a time of crisis. As we unpack this parable, the servant is found out, as it were. The servant has just been released of his duties, and the landowner has instructed him to bring in the books for examination. The master, in a sense, is saying, all right, let's see how bad of a mess you've made of my estate. As we contemplate this, we need to get a little deeper. 
To do that, we also need to understand a little of the activities in which this servant was engaged. We do this in relation to the practices of the day and the times of the writing. You know, our customs add very little to biblical interpretation. But the customs of the day bring much into how we interpret and apply Scripture to our lives. You see, according to Old Testament law, not only the servant, but the master too, was guilty of breaking the Old Testament law. Exodus 22, verse 5. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Leviticus 25, 36. Do not take interest or profit from them, but fear your Lord, so that they may continue to live among you. Deuteronomy 23.19 Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. So you see, the Jews were forbidden to take interest from their fellow Israelites. My commentary explains that those who wanted to skirt that law and make money from loans did so by reasoning that the law was initiated to prohibit the exploitation of the poor. This was not meant, they decided, to forbid innocent transactions that were mutually beneficial. You see, they understood, or rather justified, that if a man had a little oil or a little wheat, he could not be acknowledged as destitute, and thus it was a legal transaction. Since pretty much everyone had some oil and some wheat, there was no one who was truly destitute. So it was fair game in their eyes. We can clearly see what a for farce was made of the law. Interest was added in the commodity that was borrowed by law. Sorry, by law, if you borrowed 100 gallons of oil, you repaid 100 gallons of oil to the owner. But more often than not, that sum that was borrowed would suddenly increase by 20 gallons by the owner. And then another 20 to 40 by the stewards. And all this was done supposedly without the owner's knowledge. All the while, that was quite the opposite. So what did this manager do to save his skin? This is one of the areas that makes this parable hard to understand. You see, there are two schools of thought in relation to his actions. One, the manager was dishonest in reducing the bills of his master's creditors but was thinking ahead, so Jesus commends his crafty forethought towards the use of resources. Or two, the manager may have been dishonest earlier, but in reducing the bills, he is simply cutting out some of his hefty commission in the hope of goodwill later. As the writer of my commentary states, either could be correct. But if you look at the later option, he cuts himself out of the bill short term so that these people he knows will have compassion on him in the long term. If that's the case, then Jesus' point is not based on dishonesty, honesty, and in fact, it illustrates Jesus' point to use the resources God has given us wisely and generously. Back to the parable. The fact, <clears throat> the fact is the owner was in a bit of a pickle. You see, he could not legally chase down the accounts 
and get his money back. Because if he did, that would, he would implicate himself in charging interest, which, as we just heard, was against the law. The owner's only recourse was to dismiss the steward, but commend him. In so doing, he saves face in the community. At first, when we come to the end of this parable, when Scripture says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly, we may be taken aback, possibly even left speechless. Does it mean he honors the man for being dishonest? If so, how is that in keeping with the Word of God? So exactly what is meant by the text, the master commended his dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. As said by T.W. Mason, there's a big difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. So exactly why does this master commend this servant? Does the master commend him for his dishonesty? By no means. The master commends the steward because when things are falling apart, when this servant sees his finances reduced to rubble, he acts in a way that will give him security. When the servant was faced with certain ruin, he took action that would ward off a certain demise. How about us? Do we truly understand the predicament we are in at the hands of our own doing? Do we understand our own certain ruin? Do we understand we must do. For the dishonest manager, it was his financial ruin he was facing. For us, it's a recognition that we are lost in sin. As we're reminded in Romans 3, 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Even the good that we do is not good, according to Isaiah 64, 6. We are unfit to worship God. Each of our good deeds is merely filthy rags. We dry up like leaves. Our sins are like storm winds sweeping us away. So now do we see and do we, and do we understand our spiritual ruin? It was our shrewd manager's foresight and resourcefulness that are commended and not his dishonesty. The key to understanding this parable lies within the parallels of verse 4 and verse 9. Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Our steward's greatest asset is his mind, his cunning mind. He takes quick stock of his assets. He knows he's not a strong man, so physical labor is out of the question. He also recognizes within himself that he is too proud to beg. Our steward knew he must act quickly. The master had already demanded to see the books. What will he do with the short time he has? He moves quickly, utilizing his greatest asset. Who knows? The master's debtors and finances better than he. So with a quick, keen mind, he makes his master's debtors his debtors. He does this by way of eradicating their monetary debts. They would owe him big, and when he loses his cash flow, he would then collect, thereby securing his future. 
Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here is the really tough verse where many of us might shy away from this passage. Just as in this age one may engage in business practices that may guarantee one's financial security, so also for the age to come. One must engage in practices that guarantee their heavenly home. Specifically speaking into this verse, Jesus' followers must use their money for spiritual purposes. Just as wisely as the children of this world do for material gains. Our goal, our treasure, is not of this earth. So we should use our money for purposes such as tithing, Christian day schools, Christian post-secondary educations. The meaning of the phrase that they may receive you into eternal life may be the friends we made will welcome us into heaven. Now this phrase can be problematic for some believers, the idea that friends would welcome them to heaven. According to my research, it's more probable that we have a common Jewish use of the plural friends to mean God. This is in accordance with the tendency to avoid using the divine name. After all, it's not our acquaintances, but God who will receive us into our heavenly dwellings. Well done, good and faithful servants. Welcome. Share your master's happiness. Matthew 25, 21. At the end of the day, the clear message we are left with, and this is a quote from John MacArthur, the unjust servant uses his master's money to buy earthly friends. We believers are to use our master's money in a way that will accrue friends for eternity by investing in the kingdom gospel that brings sinners to salvation so that when they arrive in heaven, their eternal home, those sinners will be there to welcome them. Christ did not commend the man's dishonesty. He pointedly called him unjust. He merely used him as an illustration to show that even the most wicked sons of this world are shrewd enough to provide themselves against the coming evil. Believers are to be even more shrewd because they are concerned with eternal matters, not just earthly ones. For us to be fully assured of our security, we invest in Christ on the basis of our faith in Him, fully trusting that He will do as He says. At the beginning of this message, I spoke of how when we look at parables and try to emulate characters, a character within a parable, and that this was not one with the character to pattern ourselves after. While that is true, we are called to emulate the lesson that Jesus had, first for his disciples of the day, but that lesson is still valid for us today. With the same zeal that the steward used to secure his future, we must use to remain close to him who holds our future. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be all glory and praise, now and forever. Amen. I would like to invite uh, Connor to come uh, forward for prayer of the uh, church and community. Pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we could be here this evening at this youth service. 
We praise you for this time we had together this afternoon at, at the youth event. Help us to all grow closer to you. We thank you that Mr. Bauman could lead us this evening. We thank you for the various groups and churches that are represented here. We thank you for the youth leaders that have led us this past year. Lord, I ask that you give wisdom and strength to all who lead us. We are glad to be able to come together and worship you. We are also thankful that we could have a new pastor here at Bethel. We pray that your spirit would lead Pastor Jacob as he leads Bethel. Lord, as we leave, we ask, we ask that you continue to be with us this coming week. We pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Please rise for God's blessing. People of God, go now with these gracious words of promise as they are recorded in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I invite uh, Cash Praise Team to uh, come forward for our last final two songs.